0: This is an ABC podcast. So this story starts in Midwest America, Iowa, corn country. Um, This was in a suburb of Des Moines. There's a stranger in the middle of a cornfield.
1: His appearance in that field alarmed the farmer who owned the land. But this
0: is no ordinary cornfield. And he called the police. And the man is no ordinary trespasser. They came shortly
1: afterwards, squad cars pulled up, um, interrogated him and then kind of sent him and his colleagues who were um, also in the area on their way. But that was just the beginning. Later, an FBI agent found the field report that the sheriff's deputies wrote up and matched it with a similar incident in another cornfield. Something
0: big was brewing, very big.
1: And that set off a two-year FBI investigation that spanned multiple states. It involved aerial surveillance, planes flying overhead and
0: airport busts. Hello, Natasha Mitchell here with you for Science Friction, where my guest this week is investigative science journalist with The Intercept, Mara Vistendahl. Look, Mara's latest book is a phenomenal read. In The Scientist and the Spy, the true story of China, the FBI, and industrial espionage, I know it got me at the title, she charts a case that has tendrils into present day USA, where the Trump administration and the FBI are now targeting Chinese scientists working in American institutions, some for many years. And of course, this all has resonance this week for Australia too, as our own relationship with China is being tested over both COVID-19 and trade concerns. So Mara joins me today via Skype. So I was
1: living in China when I first read about this case. I was working for science for the news section of the journal, so that meant that I spent my days with scientists and knew a lot about the investment that had gone into Chinese science over the the preceding years. This is the first time that I saw these sorts of activities really um, criminalized in the United States, and it turned out that the case against Robert Moe was one of many that would be brought over the coming years. Fighting economic espionage and IP theft from China has become one of the top priorities of the FBI. So there are now dozens of cases brought each year. FBI Director Christopher Wray recently said that there were over a thousand active investigations wow. into this issue.
0: Some say racial profiling is at work. Others argue that the theft of trade secrets, fraud, economic espionage are real threats that need to be investigated. And we'll come back to that. But let's get back on that farm. It was run by two brothers. On part of it, they were contracted by the agricultural giant Monsanto to grow a genetically modified inbred corn seed, which could then be used to create the commercial hybrids that make Monsanto big money. The field was unmarked, top secret, its contents commercial in confidence. One of the men trespassing that day was Chinese-born Robert Moll. Robert had lived
1: in the United States for years, had a wife and two children and, and um, you know, typical kind of suburban lifestyle in Florida. And so in many ways had really become American, uh, even though he had not bothered to get his US citizenship. Um, but his colleagues had flown in from China and they worked for a Beijing agricultural firm called DBN. DBN, produces corn seed like Monsanto and had this aspiration to steal cutting edge research from US companies and reverse engineer the seed back in China. But it was a rather harebrained scheme and it ended up taking Robert and his colleagues on all these twists and turns as they tried to outsmart
0: the FBI. And Mara has spent four years following those twists and turns from the country she'd come to call home as a reporter, China, to the country she grew up in, America and its Midwest, where her father had been an agricultural reporter, so her two worlds effectively collided in this case. Just back in Shanghai, though, you were there reporting at an extraordinary time for the rise and rise of science and technology in China. And I wondered to what extent that had also filtered into agricultural research, because of course, China is the world's top importer of corn and soy, and they're reliant on US imports, aren't they, to meet their needs?
1: Yes, Imports from the United States, from Brazil, from other countries, I, you know, I knew there was a big emphasis on improving the quality of Chinese crops. I also knew that GM foods, genetically modified crops, were not allowed to be sold commercially, in part because of um, a series of, of different food safety scandals. So Chinese people were really reluctant to accept them. And and one of the interesting things about this case is that it involved genetically modified seeds and so this company DVN was targeting research that they expected would eventually be legalized in China you know really looking ahead several years to see what would be coming
0: next that is a very interesting aspect of this case because gm corn is widespread it's the norm across America, isn't it? And uh, take us then from China to the Central West. How have agribusiness giants, Monsanto, DuPont, how have they operated in the region and how have they driven GM corn as a a phenomenon in America?
1: When I started looking into this case, the FBI's effort to fight, industrial espionage, was really presented as a way to protect American innovation, protect American research. But the more I looked into it, I was driving around the Midwest, um, retracing Robert Moore's steps, also uh, retracing the steps of the FBI agent in the case. And a year or two into my research, I met a, an American farmer and seed breeder who had actually been kind of thrust into the middle of the case. He had briefly had a job for DBN as a consultant At some point, Robert and his colleagues bought a farm in Illinois and tried to pose as farmers. And this man, Kevin Montgomery, was hired to plant seeds on that farm and was unaware of the illegal activity that was going on. He eventually was turned into an FBI informant. And through him, I came... To understand all of the change that has happened in the seed industry over over the past few decades, he'd actually lost his job in in the seed industry, the major company, when the company was acquired by another one. So he was a victim of downsizing in the industry, and and that has been a huge problem, where over the past few decades, we've gone from dozens of seed companies, and this is a global issue as well, um, to just four today that that control the vast majority of the market. and farmers have been squeezed by this trend. It's also affected the quality of research. And so there's this other trend happening in this industry uh, where I found that actually um, the FBI had taken on a case on behalf of a company that was essentially very anti-competitive. You know of course, for many, People around the world, the name Monsanto is very fraught. And I was also drawn to the fact that the company is is a rather unlikely victim and that there might be a kind of more complex story beneath the story that was presented in the, in the case documents.
0: In fact, what Mara reports is that an antitrust inquiry into Monsanto, which today is no longer in American hands, it's now owned by Bayer, was mysteriously dropped by the US Department of Justice, just as the FBI was pursuing its case against Robert Mo and his Chinese colleagues. Let's meet Robert Mo better, Muddy Hooves, as I think the FBI dubbed him. <laughs> he had yeah, two that's his code names. Code name. He had two scientific PhDs, neither in agriculture. How did he come to be working for this massive seed and agribusiness company DBN back in China, and and then in America?
1: Basically through nepotism, his sister was married to a billionaire who is the CEO of DBN and he had this kind of classic academic story where he finished his second PhD and looked for an academic job and then failed to find a tenure track position and then turned to a life of crime <laughs> but it wasn't it wasn't quite that direct you know he, he found this job through his sister at first everything seemed perfectly fine and legal you know he was doing things like sourcing ingredients for swine feed and sending it back to china but then a year or so into his time at the company his boss comes to him and asks him to start swiping seed specific seed lines from Uh, from fields in the Midwest.
0: And not just any fields. I mean, this was an incredibly brash thing to do. We're talking stealing intellectual property from two corporate giants, two litigious corporate giants, DuPont and and Monsanto.
1: It was a pretty bold plan that they hatched. It was also rather harebrained. At one point, Robert and his colleagues tried to send seed back to China in microwave popcorn bags. It was intercepted by the FBI in an airport bus. So you had this just kind of absurd cat and mouse game that was being played with federal agents uh, over the span of years, um, but they were very persistent very determined to get the seed. And probably in the end, they, they did get some of it.
0: Now, what were they planning to do with the seeds that they'd taken from these fields when they got them back to China? What was the science of their mission? Well, to make
1: a hybrid seed, you need both inbred parents. Once back in China, the idea of what the US government alleged was that DBN would reverse engineer the seed line. So the idea is that DBN had somehow learned which male needed to be combined with which female, they could breed those two inbreds together in China to create
0: the hybrids that they wanted. So the mission was to ultimately have a more uh, productive crop of the ilk that Monsanto and DuPont were managing to create. That's right. So it
1: takes decades to get a good Stock of high quality inbred seed in countries like the United States, companies have that they've been they've been um, breeding those inbreds for decades. Uh, in China, the inbreds available are notoriously low quality, and so it would it makes sense that a Chinese company would try to get its hands on inbreds from from a country like the United States.
0: What was Robert Mo? convicted of in the end. He was the only only person convicted in this case.
1: Yes, he was convicted of economic espionage, which is a relatively new crime in the United States. It's only been a, a federal offence since the 1990s. It's a charge that's now very often used uh, for cases involving China and technology.
0: And this is where things get interesting because you started out to report the case of Robert Mole, but this took you much, much further, didn't it, than one case, and into a much, much deeper and vexed history of the way in which the FBI has investigated ethnic Chinese scientists working and studying in the USA. That's right. I mean, I
1: was I was drawn to this case initially because the scope of the investigation seemed somewhat out of proportion with the offense of stealing corn. And then after I started looking into it, I realized that in order to understand the case, I really needed to go back and understand the history of the FBI's uh, investigations of ethnic chinese scientists and and that's a long and fraught history goes back to the
0: 1950s a prevailing attitude in some American counterintelligence circles for a long time was that Chinese spying worked differently. It was dubbed the 1,000 grains of sand theory. So rather than sending intelligence operatives to collect buckets of sand off a beach send in 1,000 individuals students say, or scientists or engineers, tourists even to collect a grain of information each.
1: Eventually I, I did learn in doing my research that, that there was an actually dedicated FBI program to surveil ethnic Chinese scientists in the United States. Many of them were U.S. citizens. This is something that happened in the 1970s. I don't know exactly when it end, ended, but I, in the process of my reporting, obtained uh, a number of previously unreleased documents on this program.
0: And what was most interesting to you?
1: I think the suspicion that has followed ethnic Chinese researchers over the decades, even when they are, you know second or third generation American, they still often come under the suspicion of the of the u s. government. And I understand that Robert Moe was guilty of, what he was accused of doing, of stealing trade secrets. But his case did raise all these interesting questions that are coming up in similar cases, since his case is just one of many that have been brought over the past 10 years.
0: And you look at the recent past of Chinese scientists targeted and reveal some really highly flawed, even flaky investigations in some cases, yes?
1: Right. And even in the past few years, there have been cases where a researcher was charged. And then a few months later, it turned out that the FBI had not properly checked the science in the case and the case fell apart. So that is what happened with Xiaoxing Xi, for example. He was the interim chair of the physics department at Temple University in Philadelphia. He was charged with several felonies for transferring a technology to China, and you know, it turned out that his communications with um, a lab in China were all fairly standard science cooperation issues. And you know, this is an issue that comes up again and again in cases that many scientists in many fields are encouraged to collaborate with researchers in other countries, in China and elsewhere, and often it's not clear where the line is. Um, U.S. institutions are now trying to make that clearer, but in a number of cases, the FBI has made mistakes and people's lives have been ruined.
0: It's been interesting watching, and you report on this, the Work of the Chinese American community in trying to become active around this issue and trying to advocate for Chinese Americans who are being targeted by the FBI.
1: That's right, and the, the, the sheer number of cases that have been brought in the past few years, and then um, especially under the Trump administration, uh, there's been a renewed effort to bring cases involving China, and that has really galvanized um, community of. Not just Chinese American scientists, but other community organizers who are concerned about history repeating itself and and having a case like the the Wen Ho Li one of the late 1990s where. Um, you know, it turned into kind of a massive national issue, and President Clinton ultimately uh, went so far as to apologize to Wen Lee. Just for remind the way people what that was case handled. was.
0: Remind people what that case was he was a researcher at uh,
1: los alamos national laboratories so um, uh, one of the nuclear laboratories and there are several issues with that investigation but one is that it it really started with this assumption within the us government that china had stolen weapon secrets and then there was a search for who might have stolen the secrets. Eventually, an- investigators landed on Wen Holy, and many people feel like that was a very really unfair leap. And it escalated out of control. He was held in solitary confinement for many months. And um, there was just a an enormous outcry as a result of the way it was handled.
0: You've also drilled into much more recent cases under the current Trump administration over the last, well, three years, and Mm -hmm. the same is happening again. And perhaps the most disturbing of all is the National Institutes of Health. You know, one of the USA's peak research agencies has started investigating and has been investigating staff under the FBI's direction. Tell us what that has revealed have legitimate cases uh, been revealed there? There's been a
1: a very vigorous effort to, within the um, the NIH to root out grant fraud and um, there were a number of researchers who had affiliations or have affiliations with the Chinese institutions and Chinese grant programs that they did not report. Um, so there are was an issue with fraud and there, there may still be uh, among some people uh but the concern is about the way that it's been handled and uh it's been highly criminalized uh in some cases the FBI has caused a certain amount of confusion by going into institutions and doing these months-long investigations, uh, and then you know it turns out that nobody's charged with a crime, and many people just feel like they have been cast under a pall of suspicion. Um, I think in the in the popular mind too, uh, for a lot of people, grant fraud has been conflated with economic espionage and with IP theft. And in many cases, it's not clear that because somebody was kind of double dipping, you know, they basically were taking money from the Chinese government and from the U.S. government at the same time, it's not clear that that means that they were stealing IP, an important distinction to make. It is not okay to commit fraud, um, but there may be a better way to, to deal with it. many people are, who who shouldn't have anything to worry about, are scared. And under, you know, the Trump administration in general is fairly xenophobic and, you know, Trump has made a number of questionable statements about China and about Chinese American students and Chinese students. So the combination of those two phenomena is that there's just a pall of uh, fear that's been cast over many institutions and have resulted in many scientists being extremely worried and you know certainly right now with the outbreak of covid-19 and this and quite a lot of anti-asian sentiment and hate incidents rising around the world it's quite a hard time to be a member of
0: that community. How hard was this story to report for you, Mara? On the one hand, you're probing whether racism is fueling paranoia about Chinese scientists and scholars in America. But on the other hand, trade secrets, theft and industrial espionage, economic espionage can happen, does happen and certainly happens in China a lot. It seems to be partly driven and encouraged by the Chinese leadership, even, in their quest to become scientific and market leaders.
1: Certainly, the Chinese government looks the other way quite a lot of the time. There's this priority on achieving breakthroughs at all costs and a kind of willingness to disregard abuses as they happen. And right now, I think we're at this worrying moment where the United States and China are mirroring each other in behavior to some degree, where both countries are led by nationalistic leaders who are intent on consolidating their power. You know, certainly the Chinese system is more authoritarian than the US one at this point, but it is has a lot of people worried about the direction that the two countries are headed. And it it is and science and research are really shaping up to be a major flashpoint in that relationship sometimes these investigations can have the effect of driving people back to china you know in 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 some cases the the people who leave may have Done something that they do not want to talk to the FBI about, um, but there are other cases where, for example, their collaborators, the people they work with day to day, had to deal with suddenly being called in for FBI interviews and, and um, being the subject of suspicion, and that those people just got fed up and left because they they you know feel like they're suddenly a target when they have not done anything wrong.
0: And it's incredibly difficult, isn't it? Because the world wants a piece of China. China wants a piece of the world, and especially so in the scientific community. Collaboration is such a vital aspect of the work that goes on. Western scientists collaborate with, with Chinese scientists all the time. Should we be sceptical of a security threat being posed by all of these collaborations? That's the sort of tone that is playing out in America right now.
1: Right. And I do think that researchers need to be more careful about these relationships. You know, there are incidents, instances where collaboration doesn't make sense. It is really not worth it for, for researchers to be maintaining ties with um, Chinese institutions that they're hiding also. And for a long time, nothing was done
0: about about the issue. There's a certain naivety, isn't there, amongst scientists about the bigger geopolitical backdrop on which these collaborations occur.
1: I think they're losing that naivety in the, in the United States because, um, you know, really, I mean, the COVID nineteen outbreak that is essentially a, a, a scientific issue in which um, isn't in which research in China is being thrust into the spotlight and collaboration could be critical to things like developing a vaccine, uh, but it it will also more likely will enter this period of intense competition and uh, already we see nations becoming more nationalistic and kind of withdrawing into their borders and that will likely continue to happen with research as well.
0: Isn't a great uh, proportion of America's scientific community comes from China? <laughs> a great proportion of grad students come from China.
1: That's right. So whatever we do to deal with this issue of, of IP theft, I think we have to acknowledge the contributions of that community and, and address the issue in a way that does not alienate a large part of our research force. Same thing with Chinese students. The Trump administration has made some blanket statements at one point even reportedly considering banning all students from China and, you know, that could have a, a really um, negative effect on, on our institutions.
0: Where is Robert Mo today? What's his situation now? Um, Robert Mo is right now actually in
1: an immigration detention facility, which um, most people say is far worse than federal prison. And um, many of these places now have um, significant outbreaks of COVID-19. So that is um, unfortunately where where he has ended up. Ultimately, though, he will be deported? Yes, ultimately he'll be, be deported. But I don't know that um, anyone foresaw when this all started that You'd have a global pandemic and and he's now there indefinitely. And it's very hard for people to communicate with him. There are no visitors allowed, as I understand, and
0: uh, limited communication too.
1: But he could be there for many months.
0: And you mentioned plans for his future. Does he have a next step? (laughs)
1: <laughs> when I when I met with him in prison, he told me that he was planning to go back to China and write a book and that he wanted to call it Catch That Chinese Spy.
0: Oh, oh gosh. And were there any consequences for the company that he worked for, his sister's you know, the company that he and his sister work for, D B N this this multi billion dollar agribusiness, Chinese agribusiness giant.
1: No, D B N is doing fine. Their stock prices took a slight dip after Robert was arrested, but they rebounded. Um they've had other ups and downs that are apparently unrelated to this case. Agriculture in general has been affected by the trade war with the United States. But there's no it's not evident at all that this case had any impact on the company, um, just on Robert Mo and his family.
0: Congratulations on the the investigation, it's it's a compelling read, yeah, extraordinary times that we live in. Thank you so much, Mara, for joining me. Thank you. Science journalist Mara Vistendale joining me from her home in Minneapolis via Skype. Her latest book is The Scientist and the Spy, The True Story of China, the FBI and Industrial Espionage, published by Penguin Random House. Love to hear from you. Talk to me on Twitter at Natasha Mitchell or email us from the Science Friction website. The show is produced by me and Jane Lee. Tell the world about the podcast for us too, won't you? There's always more in the podcast edition, by the way, than you'll hear on ABC Radio National each week. But catch us whichever way. Bye.